This is the first one we're doing with an external guest outside of Acquired that is face-to-face -face in the office and already I can feel a better dynamic than sitting staring at a screen. Yeah. Um, but Daniel, look, thanks for, thanks for coming in. Um, could you just go into a little bit about your career, what you do now, um, just for the sake of equaling me and Dean, but the listener as well, what's your day-to-day -day job at the moment and essentially why are you here talking to us about topics today? Well, first of all, thanks so much for, for the invitation. Um, I always describe myself as like an SME, risk and compliance SME. So I've been working my entire career in the financial sector, um, multiple locations, Latin, Europe, in the UK, of course, in Asia. Uh, but since my early stages of my career, I've always been working on risk and compliance. So I've been monitoring all the regulatory agenda, just in the UK, but across all, multiple, all these multiple jurisdictions to see how those regulations are impacting the businesses in the financial industry. Mm -hmm. I don't know this this time. Uh, in terms of my exist my, my current responsibilities, I'm the head of compliance, the governance risk compliance for Tory. Tory is a consultant firm, an SME consultant firm. Uh, as part of my 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 duties is to support the whole practice. I'm the head of practice, so doing the delivery of the services, monitoring what is going on in terms of the regulatory landscape, and to see how those potential new regulations or existing regulations evolution of those are impacting or potentially cooling back the industry just in the UK but across all these uh, jurisdictions mm -hmm. and from a regular from a regulation perspective what's been something for you that's been do you know what that's something that springs to mind as a huge change and you're like wow if I had to explain to someone what's the biggest change in regulation in the last five years what, what would you what would you say that is just out of curiosity I think I'm going to be uh, even earlier on that um, well, actually, when I started my career, it was around 2008, seven. actually when the, the financial crisis hit. So at that time, the, I would say 100% of the regulations were orientated to cover only the financial aspects of the industry. So for example, liquidity, uh, liquidity risk, market risk, capital risk, so actually credit risk, of course. So the whole industry was, and all the regulators across all these multiple jurisdictions were advocated just on financial risk management. And then since 2015, 16, that changed because we were more mature in that financial aspect. Now, there was another aspect that we were, we were not very actively involved, which actually was operational risk, the non-financial risk aspects. So, and that's linked to the increasing dependency on technology, cloud services, third parties as well. Um, and that's when the whole new wave of regulation started. Uh, for example, now we are talking about operational resilience, consumer duty experiments, especially in the UK. But those are concepts that we were paying the shoot like five or ten years uh, ago. But now we see a um, more mature approach how to address this. So I would say in terms of the, the changes, obviously from a financial, and now we are moving into a more operational aspects. Now the third wave that we're seeing is the consumers, how to protect consumers on, you know, considering all of these um, in terms of the market, all these disruptions, all this noise, uh, how those potential risks and threats can impact households and people uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So we're seeing that way. I was just going to say, actually, on, on that, do you think that, you know, you started at 
the, the financial the, the crisis of 2007-2008. Do you think that the economy was more resilient going through that crisis than what it appears to be going through the crisis now? Because I know we haven't come through this crisis yet. It's, we're right in the middle of it. But do you get the sense that we were more resilient back then and even though there's more legislation and things like that now, this might be a more difficult period? Uh, it's a tricky question. Um, <laughs> in economics, we always, we always have cycles, okay? There will be ups and downs. Um, and they could be caused by a particular effect and that will create one, a particular event and that creates a ripple effect. However, what we're seeing now is the more in considering the scales of the integrations and the, and, the, and the links between different markets, products and, and financial services and even legislations, I think now is way more easy to spread a potential noise or disruption across multiple players, not necessarily financial institutions, but as well to other sectors of the economy. So I think in base, if we analyze the regulatory framework that we had before the financial crisis 2007-2008. From a financial perspective, I think there were some elements that we didn't consider because we didn't have the information. Okay, now it's easy to look back and to judge. But at that time, there were some issues on indicators. Maybe we didn't pay all the attention that we should to address those, and then we have to for it. I think that this financial crisis, more financial crisis that we're having post-COVID, I think that was we all knew that we were paying the bill, you know, sooner or later, because there is no free lunch in the economy. So you need to pay the bill at the end of the, at the, end of the day. You need to, you know, someone's going to switch on the lights and the party, and there's going to, or the wireless needs to be shown. So I would say from a resilience perspective, um, I always say this to my students, to my clients, to everyone, it's, and it's my personal view on resilience. It's not an action or word, it's a sum of actions, okay? So to be resilient, and then you need to find what is resilient for you, what is resilient for the financial market, what is resilient for organization. So understand or setting those principles, I think that very well, you can start establishing actions, how to act properly to that resilient frames that is defined. Yeah. In the UK, when it comes to resilience, now we talk about operational resilience. This is going to need to plan over. But I think all the jurisdictions are taking a different approach on that. Uh, for example, in Europe, it's very IT orientated with DORA. For me, I think it's, uh, resilience is not just IT. I do understand the heavy dependency on IT, but it's not the only component. I think that from my perspective, um, that's part is missing in, 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 in Europe. When, for example, Basel standards in the UK have become, has become the, the gold, golden standard across the entire world, it's a principle-based type of regulation, it's not prescriptive. Yeah. So it tells you that you need to go from point A to point B, but each organization has the freedom to choose which way they want it. If it's a straight line, it's a zigzag. Do, do you think there's a, a very big similarity between what was TCF back in back in the day, so financial industry in the UK, yeah, treat, treating customers fairly, mm -hmm. um, and now you've got consumer duty, which most of the people I've been speaking to don't seem to see much of a difference. They've just 
packaged it under a different label. Whereas TCF might have been, show me what you've done. Consumer duty seems to be more, tell me what you've done. Is, is, would that be a fair uh, summary? And this is, <clears throat> sorry, this go back to the spirit of the regulation, especially the UK is moving the FCA and the, and the, and the PRA, they are moving from a very prescriptive type of regulation to a more principle base. Okay. Therefore, there is no, it's, it's difficult for organizations to understand the requirements yeah. because they were used to, to just tick the box. Yeah. Okay. So the whole risk enterprise management framework, the whole compliance framework is now shift actually to a bit more principle based to understand which are all the elements that potentially could affect and not just to tick the box. Yeah. Okay. So I think that we are moving to that direction. One of the main challenges, and I think that we, the first good example was the operational resilience, where the FCA actually established a three, one plus three years implementation. One year assessment for the organization to do the assessment, then three years implementation to close the gaps. Was to force organizations to, one of the main challenges was that not everyone was aligned or understood actually the business strategy. So they were working on silos. Yeah, it was very interesting, for example, seeing some clients that they didn't know between them uh, when we're doing the assessments and stuff. So bring down those barriers into the communication, into the strategy um, from operational perspective was very good. So I think now with this second type of or second test with consumer duty, it's exactly the same. This is not a compliance or only um, a consumer protection act. It's understanding the whole dynamic, the whole engine behind how the business or the organization designs distribute and commercialize all the all the services and to understand that even though they transfer or sell that product they are still accountable for some of this stuff mm. so it's not just I, I sold the product and i forgot about that no it's about you are responsible because you create that and potentially that you can cause a potential harm to our to our customers to understand that from the very beginning from the even from the design uh, <clears throat> I want to shift gears. I want to go over to AI. I know that's okay. you're talking around it at the at the event in September. Um, but from a perspective of impacts, challenges, and opportunities, what one spread to mind for you when it comes to AI? I think we think of AI, or I think of AI now as like advanced language models. But we know AI has been around for a long time. You know, what kind of opportunities and challenges do you see that now having? You know, moving forward, and what, and maybe touch on a piece that you're talking about in in September. Super. So, in terms of the AI, and I think with all the emerging technologies, ten years ago we were saying exactly the same with cloud uh, services. Uh, moving to cloud, where is that to understand the whole dynamics? What is that like a black box from these guys, from these uh, IT uh, companies? What is this setup? What is this about? Understanding that dependency or that structure as a business model, and the potential implications for that. Now we are with. AI, we were talking like three years ago about cryptos, uh, bitcoins, and like all technology behind. Now we're talking about AI machine learning. So every time that is a new technology, there is some kind of, uh, was it, I wouldn't say nervousism, but uh, it's, people start getting a little bit anxious about how to adopt in the potential implications. Mm -hmm. And of course, regulators are watching that very, very closely. Actually, that's, this week I was talking with the FCA. We haven't come like a chance with them. One of the things that I want to focus is on the two aspects is the 
the crypto assets or the crypto to define how if it's you know if actually if it's an asset or not. So defining those concepts in order to define the whole set of rules for the market participants to play. And the other aspect was the emerging technologies, including AI. So from an industry perspective, I think there are some initiatives that the organizations are, or solutions that the organizations are started to, to taste. Okay, so for example, you have the chat box, you have some elements related to fraud, to, to detect and prevent fraud. You have some more sophisticated solutions, for example, especially over the collector, is about sentiment. So for example, if a customer starts, um, you have start, started having a conversation with the, with the customer, this solution can start monitoring the sentiment behind the, the wording and all the stuff. So you can tailor as an organization the message to understand if the person is angry, trying to tailor a solution, et cetera. Especially on the debt collector, is very sensitive yeah. and all, the, all these aspects. So I think it's understanding, which is your, for, for which reason you want to apply, if they want to apply that technology. And second, understand the, the, the possible consequences from a compliance perspective. It's a very thin line at the moment between being compliant or not, depending on how you want to play it. Um, type of data protection, because you are extracting information from, from, from the client, not necessarily they are giving you the consent to do that. So they need to be very careful which technology. However, in terms of the efficiencies, I think that, for example, Chatbox helps to improve the operational uh, efficiency, increase that. The second, for example, if you want to, and for debt collectors as well, and for credit organizations, if you want to, uh, you can tailor, depending on the, the profile of those, of, the, of those people, how you can tailor a modeling, a financial modeling behind that, and you can get a better estimate in terms of the, the repayment and so on. So you can have a, a potential a financial or capital gains, capital gains efficiencies on, the, on this. So it's understanding the needs and the potential consequences mm -hmm. and to actually balance them out in terms of the costs and benefits. It's going to be more of a constant flow of information, Absolutely. right? That's what it's going to be. And I think from our perspective, that ties quite closely to the world of open banking and it being a constant flow of information, you know, you've constantly got an eyeball on someone's financial situations. You know, I was talking to I think Chris Warburton on our, another podcast around it being, what flags can AI use potentially around open banking and around just AI as a whole? What signals can we use in, in, from an AISP perspective to flag, well, are there vulnerabilities happening with a certain person? You know, have they changed their insurance premium to something that's therefore then flagging, I don't know, their form of vulnerability. Is that gonna then affect the fact that they can repay? You know, all of this is just a constant flow of information. So, I mean, do you have many conversations with your clients around open banking and how they're yeah. gonna use that in the future? And from a real-time point of view as well, yes, because yeah. I think that's quite important because if, if data coming through to the lenders is outdated and the term outdated could even refer to a week old, that's a week's true. old data, how important do you think it's going to be to have that real-time access? It's not a simple, <laughs> it's a very difficult question because there is not a single, there is not a silver bullet, okay? So it depends who you talk to. If, a, if it's a retail client, of course, um, the fact of having that, you know, to provide a very 
seamless, frictionless, uh, feature-free, sorry, uh, type of service is, is a must. So you need to, as an organization, provide that as a default because that is the expectation. Therefore, you need to, from an operational perspective, have the engine behind to support that. If you are talking, for example, wholesales, uh, or any with management, or other type of business, or subsectors, this story might change. But going back to the point of, of fraud, and, the, and again, I'm going back to the point of understanding your client is one thing, but getting extra information to try to position a specific product is another thing. And that's why the very thin line between consumer protection, between having the right set of information from the client, GDPR, et etc., is very important. It's not just sending the product, but the way how you sell the product, and which information do you use to sell the product, okay? That's one point. In terms of the real-time data, and I think this is where we're moving now, the direction, is we are seeing organizations, finally, especially the, the banking sector, the banking sector in the UK, my, most of our clients, from an open banking perspective, uh, the CMNI, we are seeing actually, we have been um, a few years now with open banking in the UK, and now we are moving, and there is an expectation that the, the rest of the market actually to absorb this as a, as a no. Um, so in terms of the data strategy, uh, I think it's very important for us to define that. Which type of a structure you're going to have? Is a data lake? Is a data mesh? How you're going to sync your systems, your platforms with legacy system that you have? How you're going to bring new platforms to absorb that kind of volume of transactions of MIs, KPIs, etc. And how you actually want to perform in real time or and execute all those transactions. Yeah. And on top of that, how you monitor all these fraud activities. And this, for example, when AI can play a very interesting, and is playing an interesting um, role, is to detect patterns in terms of the, how the social engineering, and for example, criminals are doing, it, are doing exactly the same, yeah. is identify potential patterns, how to, that could be, you know, you can define a outlier and then you can assign a probability that is potential fraud and then you can trigger all the investigation. So I think that from a data perspective, yeah. yeah, and because and, retail is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, I remember walking into, you know, the likes of Curry's or whatever, and, you know, if you wanted to take out finance, you had to go to a little room, you had to sit down, you had to go through all the paperwork and fill out all your details and apply, and then you had to wait for the decision. Now, I think, as you, you talk about, do, do you think that the AI aspects and the real-time data will be invaluable to the to the likes of retailers that want to offer finance for the speed of the absolutely. customer experience absolutely i mean you don't need to wait and that actually the not, not even retailers but even from a banking industry perspective why you need to go to the branch when was the last time you guys came to the branch <laughs> my local ones closed down i don't think there is a local branch yeah. if you can and, and that's why actually that was the first way of disruption is if you can complete all your transactions and all your requirements and all your operations, day-to-day operations with your banking system, within your phone, using your phone, and you can have access 24-7, why do you need to go to the branch? So the whole operating model has changed, mm. and we're moving to more detailed uh, environment. Actually, COVID helped to increase the, the, the whole detail world and stuff. Um, so before COVID, we, we had this in our mindset that no, you need to sign the paper, you know, this is, 
it's, it's more secure experience than that. But they are all the ways how to do things. And COVID proof us that they all the ways how to do things in even a more secure way, how to protect data, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, and then, and you mentioned, for example, the retailers. Now the, the financial industry have changed as well. You have non-banking um, players or financial institutions. They are even bigger than the banks. And now they're getting into the, into the sector. So you have a Google, you have Google Pay, which is a payment platform, basically. Yeah. You have, for example, in China, uh, WeChat, which yeah. for me is, is, is a, one of the biggest uh, apps from a conceptual perspective. Yeah. So you don't need a bank. What you need to have is a platform and access, immediate access to the platform to execute your transaction. And if you are out of that platform, potentially your business will suffer because with all the organizations all, all it's going to take that position in the market. That's why, for example, from the open banking, you are creating soup, like marketplaces, where, for example, insurance, banking, uh, for example, real estate, everything is connected. Yeah. So you have almost real-time information back and forth and the customer can take decisions and everything is integrated. Just, just going off tangent ever so slightly, just because no, I wanted to, right, to right. pick up on your WeChat thing, because that fascinates me, because I think that is an absolutely humongous beast, if you like, WeChat. Do you think that that will encroach into Europe and more importantly the UK, or do you think it will remain predominantly an, an Asian platform? Um, I will stick with the concept, not with the, with the leg, <laughs> with the name of the product. Yeah. So actually, when I was living in China, um, I was really surprised. Um, I moved to China in 2013, um, and back then, 10 years ago, I was fascinated about WeChat, because for me it was like a, it's like a first iPhone, yeah. what, what iPhone did to integrate music, camera, phone, all, the, all those features in just one single. Yeah. So the application of WeChat, 10 years ago, they already have that, so I'm actually surprised that, well, we didn't have this in, 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 in Europe or in the West. So I think there's, um, of course, there's a compliance aspect, there's a regulatory aspect, there's a government aspect of that behind that, for reasons. But from a concept perspective, I would be expecting that now in the, in the West, we should be having similar type of, of application. And that's, for example, open banking will help because we bring transparency across the line and we set the rules in a very transparent way to everyone. To be, to be part of that. Yeah. Mm. And while we're on the kind of the whole topic of payments, you know, we bring that back to cybersecurity. You know, you, you talk a lot about this uh, and payments in general. Where do you, how, how important from a perspective of payments do you see that to a lender? You know, and how important does cybersecurity come in the conversations you have when it comes to payments? I mean, we're seeing alternate payment methods go through the roof at the moment. We've mentioned a couple already. But from a, I don't think payments is as simple as making a transaction anymore. Um, you know, lenders could probably enhance the way that consumers can go and pay. Debt collection agencies can definitely enhance the way they collect debt. You know, how do you see that evolving in the future? And have you got any kind of you know, trends that you picture that might, that might actually come to life? And, and I'm going back again mm -hmm. to like 10 years ago, before open banking, it was like very worried about open banking, about exposing API, what is this? And that was because banks and the main financial institutions, they were the ultimate 
repository of transactions, payments, platforms, systems. So they were the owners quotation, owners of mm -hmm. the information from the client, the client's information. Now with open banking, actually, those world, those world were turned out because banks had to open the platforms to integrate with the, with the rest of their participants. Mm -hmm. And that lose for the banks, they lose power from, from a client perspective. So therefore, all the costs and obligations for, in terms of the executing a transaction, actually were reduced to almost minimum. So it's not very sexy just to provide a, a, you don't get too much money from the from the payment transaction. But it's for the added value that you add at the at the end of the or the beginning of or at the end of the other transaction. So in terms of the opening that platform, of course when you open something you will be exposed to different types of risk, opportunities and risk. In terms of the cyber security, and I think this is one of the critical aspects at the moment, is how actually you encrypt information from point A to point B. There are solutions, for example, uh, like crypto. And blockchain. And blockchain, correct. That helps you to secure end-to-end -end information. Um, I think it's, it's still a little bit too sophisticated, it's too complex for some organizations to manage that, but we are getting there. And it's, it's, it's not um, a cheap way how to encrypt information. So you need to, this resource um, demands a lot of resources to maintain that. But there are some certain aspects that you can do in order to monitor what is going on from each of the, from point A to point B. And it's again, is the behavior of the, of, the, of the user. So for example, understanding which are the typical, and you can use AI for that, to monitor, for example, to design the whole threat intelligence unit. We have that, for example. Um, so we monitor the endpoints and how other people or organizations have been hacked in the past or have been perpetrated. So we use that to calibrate our models. So we assign probability to depend on, for example, if this, if is A, B, and C, there is a probability. If these three events are, uh, we can identify those three events, we assign a probability of 90% that that is going to be our potential. So we use data mm -hmm. as a consumption to calibrate the events. Of course, it's not 100% accurate. This is more like an art during that, that science, but it's trying to play ahead of criminals when they use this signal. So I, I spoke with Steve Brown at Mastercard. So he's their head of cybersecurity and resilience for the UK and Europe, and he talked a lot around third-party supply chain. <laughs> now I can see the laugh. I know, I know there's something here, which is why I want to touch on it. What are your thoughts on that? And I, and I think that is something. That, do you think that's something that's overlooked from a or a business perspective? They don't necessarily. Oh, cybersecurity and payments is very much an internal problem, whereas you completely neglecting this third-party chain that are plugged into all of your systems that could potentially be you know, an exposure for you? This is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> so at the moment, we are doing a service to a well-known insurance company. So as part of that, they have critical suppliers. They have around 20. And we're doing some, some reviews of, of uh, a review of their critical suppliers, some of them. Um, and we have our methodology, our stuff. And the reason why we're doing this is, is an enhanced due diligence to the supplier chain. And the reason why is because traditional organizations, when it comes to third parties, to procurement, all those kind of activities, has been a tick box exercise. Yes, we have a policy tick. Yes, we have a stock tick. But I want to say everyone, but not too many organizations actually did their homework to validate 
them to get a certain level of, of assurance of the control that their supplier is supposed to have in place. And quite often, when they did their on-site reviews and that kind of stuff, they found out that they didn't have they just They're just fine, basically. So in terms of the supply chain, I think this is actually one of the key elements about operational resilience, is to understand your dependencies and vulnerabilities to your critical, especially with your critical suppliers, and to their whole supply chain, okay? So because your supplier, especially if it's critical, shouldn't be just a supplier, should be your partner in your journey. So you need to work together to achieve your whole business goal and strength. If it's more, if it's not a critical supplier, the whole relationship could be taken as a more transactional, and that's okay, because you need to be focused, this, this needs to be a risk-based approach. So whatever you have more risk, you should be on more attention in doing the whole work. So when it comes to third party, I think, and again, this is one of the things that we are seeing after COVID, is that we saw that in the trade, international trade, and on the freight and stuff, there was some, a lot of fraud on that, for example, containers with you know, face masks and stuff, and there was all fraud, especially international trade, suffer a lot on this, um, trade finance, because they were, no one was fully prepared for that, and we just assumed things, and they were, we actually did the proper diligence, we like, oh, it looks like it's, it's someone costing us. So from a supplier perspective, and even the regulators are paying a lot of attention on this, they is at the moment a consultation paper. Actually, I, I think they finished last, in June, but we in July, the consultation period. But there is a, a potential policy, uh, policy statement that we, the FCA is going to launch uh, or to publish um, this, half, this second half of the year. And it's about critical suppliers. How, and we follow, we still, the European, you can work in the European Union, there is an, an outsourcing framework for all the third parties and so on. The UK adopted that. I think there is an application to review some of those components, but are we still more of the same as in the European Union? Can you give me an example of what a critical supplier would be? I think sometimes that could be like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, that depends who you talk to, but from a UK perspective, a critical supplier linked to the operational resilience, okay, are those suppliers that are linked to the important business services. Mm -hmm. For example, if you are a payment institution, potentially, Joe, the, if you have a dependency on a cloud provider, dependence, for example, if your platform isn't is hosting the cloud, you have that supplier will be your critical supplier. Right. Because will underpin your critical or your important business. You're dependent on that relationship Absolutely. to, to your deliver. Business. Yeah. To deliver just yeah. Yes. Okay. That makes more sense. And then a mindful of time, um, consumer journey. What are, your, what, what are your thoughts on that? And I know that's literally just been implemented as of this week officially, yeah, right? Monday, yes, correct. Um, so what's your thoughts on that? I know it's kind of hard for you to say, yeah, let's reflect on that. It's been about 24 hours since it was gone. But what's your thoughts, general thoughts uh, on the whole piece and why do you think it, it was needed in the first place? I think it's, it's always good to look after the consumers, especially under the current circumstances. Um, I think it was a, a good timing, I would say, in terms of the, to understand what was going on in the market. And if there's this crisis that we have, small crisis that we have, or turbulence, it's not crisis, it was small turbulence, and how the household actually were taking the, the effect, the ripple effect on the economy effect, in terms of the mortgages and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the pensions as well. So 
from an operational perspective for the organization, it was a very, very challenging type of regulation because, again, moving from a prescriptive to a principle-based regulation is very difficult to deploy because, and again, this is not, even though it's a regulation, it's not a compliance stuff. It's an operational aspect, it's a business So having them, you need to have them more of course, all the senior management to understand first, which is the requirement, what, what the, the FC is asking. Yeah. Um, second, how to cascade that task to the operational teams. For example, from product development to understand all the dynamics in the agent behind, from a financial perspective, from a legal perspective, from the compliance perspective. Um, how actually to understand your distribution channels and your ecosystem, how you interact with them, and when do you transfer the liability in each step of the process. So having done that exercise, I think now organizations are in better shape to understand the whole value proposition. Uh, I think now there is uh, the main challenge as we have, for example, with operational resilience is, and it's still with operational resilience, is the embeddedness of that in your day-to-day activities. Do you, That's the main challenge. Do you think it's too ambiguous? It's open to too much interpretation can be you know, given given to consumer duty, do you think that's where there is a potential problem that that companies may turn around and go, well, I don't need to handle my payment strategy because that's not directly part of consumer duty. But other companies may turn around and say the payment strategy is very much part of the consumer duty because I'm acting in the best interests of the consumer by having as many payment options available as possible. So, do you think that there could be some ambiguity there, as as in one company might view as important and another one might not. I wouldn't say ambiguity. I would say if if you understand your ecosystem and your value change and your business proposition, and if your partners are your suppliers are your partner in this journey, they are all aligned, will be aligned in the same direction. So I think that has a lot of you know having that discussion which is more important or not, I think it's not that it's not relevant, but it's not the main task. I think will be a challenge of, for example, defining some terms hard. How do you define hard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think will be more, more and more challenges than that. But understanding that this this is not a, a tick box. This is no one off. This is going to be an evolving type of regulation, exactly the same as regulation resilience. So that we are going to see now more information, more guidance from the regulators. They are going to start knocking some people's door to see, you know, how they were actually they were already during the consultation paper, or during the, the implementation period, sorry, um, they were doing some assessment in terms of to test how the, the financial institution were applying this. And they found some gaps, substantial gaps, and across all of them, all the subsectors that they assess, actually they identified that having an understanding of the request was the main driver of the failure, you know, the failure behind. So if, how to define stuff, for example, harm. How do you define harm to customers? So, and that's why it's really difficult for organizations to feel that they are fully compliant because, it, again, it's not a compliance, it's a business. So, yeah, but how to implement this from a personal perspective? I'm compliant or not? Yes or no? Tell me the theory, <laughs> no? It's when we are stepping in to support them. It's like, always the final question is, are you sure that with this, are we in compliance? So as, as long as you demonstrate to the FCA that you define your criteria, 
geometrics, you have a governance in place, you have a framework, and you understand the potential vulnerabilities or potential harm that you can cause to your clients. At this stage, is that is expectation regular. And they have said that through all the webinars, all the materials, all the presentations, and all the speeches that they have been published for the last year, for the last seven months, more or less, say a month. That is the expectation. And of course, but we are not going to stay there, we're going to evolve. And of course, this is a journey. Because using the debt collecting example, um, if I'm a person in hmm. debt, but I'm a willing payer. So I'm in debt, I've been notified, I've fallen behind, I want to get it resolved as quickly as possible. So you could say I'm, I'm in harm's way right now because I'm a delinquent payer, I'm, I'm behind. I prefer to pay directly via my mobile phone. I've got, I've got savings in a separate bank account. I can go on right now and I can choose pay by bank and I can put funds straight into that account, bring myself back up to date but as a company, that option for me to pay is not available. Would that be considered harming your, your customer? Don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even want to start now. <laughs> next question. Next question. <laughs> it's quite difficult to say. It's an interpretation thing, isn't it? Correct. That's what I was sort of trying to. But what I would say, for example, one of the, I would say, bad practices that we say with all the energy crisis in, in December and January, when some utility firms actually move or change uh, credit to, to prepaid cars, actually that is a bad practice. Yeah. That is what the whole thing wants to avoid. Yeah. I, I think that the financial sector have been through this process a while ago, I mean, in terms of the harm that they can cause to the clients. So I think the financial sector industry sorry, is more mature on treating customer fairly, I would say, more or less. But the utility firms and other type of firms, actually they, <laughs> more recently, we have a, unfortunately bad examples of the way how to actually cause more harm to the client when they need more support from them. Yeah. From them. Mm. yeah. Awesome. I think we're out of time, unfortunately, but we're, gonna, we're definitely going to have you back for another one. Um, but for, for the sake of the listener, if they've got any questions off the back of this, how can they get hold of you and what's the best, easiest way to, to get an answer out of you? Super. So you can contact me on LinkedIn. Um, I do have there my email and my, my, yeah. my, even my personal mobile phone is there. <laughs> I think I'm, sometimes I consider it to remove, but I, um, I think that's, that is the best, the best way and then we can take it from there. Awesome. And for yourself, Dean, LinkedIn? LinkedIn, absolutely. Yeah, always respond to, to messages. Love, love people's opinions. Absolutely. Awesome. Daniel, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. 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 Oh,